When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One evening of a warm September day, a great and mighty airship from Lake Burt flew away. The mighty Shenandoah, the pride of all this land, her crew was of the bravest. Captain Lansdowne in command. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of The Wreck of the Shenandoah. And if that sounds like an oldie, you're right. It was written and performed in 1925 by Vernon Dalhart. In lieu of the featured Ohio musical artist tonight, we thought it appropriate to share this song with you about tonight's topic. Stick around to the end of the podcast and we'll play the whole song for you. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. In Southeast Ohio's Noble County, the Noble Local School District is comprised of just two schools. Kids there go to school at Shenandoah Elementary through 8th grade, then it's off to Shenandoah High. Their sports teams call themselves the Zepps, and part of the district campus is on Zepp Road. Clearly, the folks in that area already know what I'm about to tell you, because the names Shenandoah and Zepps are written in the land there. They come from a historic, if tragic, event that happened in 1925, the crash of the Navy's first Zeppelin, the USS Shenandoah. The Shenandoah was just two years old when she met her end, but she had already distinguished herself. The airship was designed by Dr. Carl Arnstein. He was the chief designer for the Goodyear Zeppelin Corporation in Akron. She was constructed at Lakehurst Naval Air Station in New Jersey, at the time the only place in the country with a hangar big enough for such a task. Goodyear's famous air dock in Akron wouldn't be built till 1929. The Navy wanted their own Zeppelin fleet because it had taken notice of Germany's use of them during World War I. They seemed like a really good tool for scouting enemy positions. So the ship was christened Shenandoah because one Native American interpretation of the word means daughter of the stars. And she took flight on September the 4th 1923. She became an enormous source of pride for Americans who gobbled up regular reports on what the Shenandoah was up to. 
I should probably point out that a Zeppelin is much different than the blimps we see in the air today. For starters, they're huge. At 680 feet long, easily three times longer than a typical blimp. Also, most blimps don't have a rigid frame. They're basically a balloon filled with non-flammable helium. The crew of a blimp is carried in a small gondola that hangs below the balloon and only carries a handful of people. Zeppelins not only have a framework, they have catwalks and rooms in that balloon. People work inside there while the dirigible is in flight, with the lifting gas held inside separate cells. Also, the gondolas beneath the Zeppelin could transport dozens of people. If you'll recall the Hindenburg, it was almost like a cruise ship. The Shenandoah was also a first in that it used helium to make it buoyant. The gas that doomed the Hindenburg more than a decade later, that was flammable hydrogen. Helium was much safer, but in 1923, it was the equivalent of gold in the gas world. Very scarce. As a matter of fact, it took much of the world's reserves just to fill this one dirigible. It held 2.1 million cubic feet of gas. So they had to be very careful that none of that helium was escaping. The trick was to use one of the most gas impervious materials known to man, the intestines of a cow. The intestines would be washed and scraped to remove fat and dirt, then placed in a solution of water and glycerin. Then they would use rubber cement to adhere the intestines to the cotton fabric and coat it all with varnish. The Zeppelin was lifted by 20 of these cells that were created to hold the helium. Now, before the Shenandoah was put to work on reconnaissance missions, authorities tested her for long trips through rain and fog and wind, and they made the argument that she did so well, she might make a really good explorer of the Arctic. And a preliminary plan was approved to do just that. But she had her first accident just four months after her first flight. During a January storm at the Navy base in Lakehurst, she ripped away from her mast and tore a hole in the first helium cell. The crew was inside, and they rode out the storm and landed her safely, but still extensive repairs were needed, so the Arctic expedition was scrapped. On her first birthday... In September of 1924, she became the first airship to cross North America, a flight that took her from Lakehurst, New Jersey to California. And then it was the eve of her second birthday, and she was slated to do a goodwill tour of the Midwest to satisfy all the people who had been clamoring to see her and wanting to justify all the tax dollars that were spent on building her. The plan was to fly over 40 major cities and drop in at some state fairs. Papers were even promoting a last-minute addition to the flight schedule of activities. On the return trip, when the Shenandoah was to pass over Akron, Chief Petty Officer Franklin Masters would parachute from the airship. You see, 
Masters and his very pregnant wife were from Akron, and she had gone to stay in Akron with her mom since Frank was going to be away on the Shenandoah. But their little Bobby entered the world earlier than expected. Frank was granted furlough, but if he wanted off the ship, he was going to have to jump. Now, right now, we're still on the first night of this tour. The ship rose and crossed the Allegheny Mountains of Pennsylvania with a cruising height of about 3,600 feet. And about 4 a.m., it passed the border into Ohio. And that's when the crew realized they might have a problem. Lightning was seen in the distance, and the winds of a distant storm could be felt. Lieutenant Commander Zachary Lansdowne was awakened. Lansdowne was a native of Greenville in western Ohio's Dark County. His hometown was so proud of its famous son. The local newspapers kept track of his rising career and the crowning achievement when he was put in charge of the Shenandoah the year before. Had already flown over Greenville once, his family, friends, and area residents cheering as he soared through the clouds. He had planned to do it again later this morning, when his mom, Elizabeth, would be standing in her front yard waving to her son. He wasn't going to make it. Lansdowne and his crew took action fast. They could see the lights of Cambridge in the distance. They turned south, engines at full speed, hoping to slip around this massive storm. The ship changed its course a dozen times, but they couldn't escape the line of squalls. Cloud formations rolled and twisted about the ship, causing turbulence. Two of the six engines overheated and failed. Support cables running through the ship began to snap. The ship climbed to 5,500 feet, trying to get above the storm. When it couldn't find safety up there, it dropped to 3,000 feet. And for a moment, everyone aboard thought they had found the sweet spot. But suddenly, just after 5 a.m., a violent updraft yanked the Shenandoah upward and literally tore the airship apart. In that early morning light, several noble county families had gotten up to watch the arrival of the cigar-shaped vessel. They had no idea they'd be watching the life-and-death battle between the ship's crew and what some described as invisible, angry air demons. A farmer named C.L. Arthur described it for reporters. It was just after dawn, and the few of us who were up were watching the airship as it came into view over the rim of the mountains. It was a beautiful thing as it glided through the sky, and we stood there, almost overawed by the thing as it came by the spot where we were standing. Then suddenly there was a roar that resounded over the countryside, and the giant bag split. There were 43 men aboard. 14 would die, many of them the crew that was in the control car, one of the four cars that hung from the bottom of the dirigible. Among the dead was Commander Lansdowne. Witnesses said the commander remained calm throughout the ordeal. And when he realized that the control car that he and several crew were in 
was beginning to detach from the ship, he told his men to save themselves. But only two were able to crawl up a ladder into the hull of the ship before the gondola wrenched away and plummeted. Colonel C.G. Hall, a United States Army observer who had been with Commander Lansdowne, told reporters he was on the ladder leading up into the hull when the cabin broke away. He started to fall but clutched a girder and hung suspended till he could swing his body over it and crawl 50 feet into the ship while the cabin disappeared beneath him. Two other men fell to their deaths through holes in the hull. Several mechanics fell with their engines. While the bag of the Zeppelin had been torn into three parts, many of the cells that held the gas remained intact. As such, 29 lucky survivors were able to ride their pieces of the ship as they bumped into trees and buildings. One section swirled about in the air for an hour before it finally came to rest. In Akron, the family of Frank Masters, that new dad who was going to parachute off the ship to see his newborn son, they learned of the tragedy. But then they received an early morning telegram with just two words, Franklin OK. Later, Masters would tell them about his close call. He had been on duty in the doomed control car just one hour before the crash. He said the challenge with the storm was that it was still dark when they were fighting it and their visibility was limited. He said if they had arrived in the area even an hour later, the daylight would have probably saved them, allowing them to navigate around the storm better. Master said his shift ended at 4.30 a.m. and he was relieved. He went to his bed, located midship, where he slept about a half hour. Then the bucking of the ship woke him up. He got up to investigate and saw the ship was beginning to rip apart. Right where he stood, he had to make a split decision which part of the ship to cling to. He grabbed the girder that went with the middle section and clung to it as that section separated and started heading for the ground. Master said as the balloon neared the ground, he knew he had to jump clear of the framework that would crash behind him. He watched as the earth rose up and timed his leap, then rolled quickly away as the framework came down. It came so close to him that pieces of twisted metal reached out, grabbed the sleeve of his shirt, and shredded it. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. But his injuries were minor, and the next day he was able to join his family in Akron. The man who had taken the controls from him an hour before the crash had gone down with the ship. There were two other Ohioans aboard who survived the crash. Radio officer Raymond Cole of Lima in Allen County 
was taken to a hospital in Marietta with a leg injury, but recovered after a few days. And Chief Aviation Rigger Lewis Allily of Logan in Hocking County made it out alive. According to Frank Masters, Allily had the same shift as he did, and as he was also relieved at 4.30 a.m., narrowly missed going down with a control car. The startling way in which the airship was destroyed could never be fully explained. One theory is that eight of the craft's safety valves had been removed in order to better preserve all that expensive helium inside, and that because the safety valves weren't there for venting, the gas cells overexpanded as the ship took that sudden rise in the updraft, and the extra mass damaged the framework and led to a structural failure. Others said they knew Dr. Carl Arnstein's original design had been changed during the ship's construction by the Navy, and they debated whether those alterations had compromised the ship. But investigators had little physical evidence to work with, because within five hours of the crash, a thousand people descended on the site and stripped it of anything they could carry. Cables, platforms, joints, gasoline tanks, electric communication wires, the cells that held the gas. Items whisked away included the vessel's logbook and meteorological instruments that might have told the story of what had happened. Even after National Guard troops were called in to try and Look after what couldn't be carried away? Souvenir hunters continued to slip in for days until everything detachable was gone. The narrow, winding gravel roads through the rolling hills of Noble County became congested as people fought to get in. One local farmer, Charles Nicewanger, charged visitors a buck to park on his property so they could get close to the section that dropped in on his land, the U.S. Department of Justice sent in prohibition agents to conduct a door-by-door search of homes, businesses, and barns throughout the county, and they collected four truckloads of wreckage. But with the wreckage littering Noble County across a six-mile span, much was never recovered. People even took the personal effects of the crew that had fallen from the blimp, and some may have even looted the bodies. For a time, it was believed someone had pulled Commander Lansdowne's class ring from the Naval Academy at Annapolis right from his hand. The Secret Service got involved in the search for it, and the government offered a reward for its return. It wasn't until 1937, that was 12 years after the crash, that it was discovered the ring must have come off on its own. It was found by a homeowner near Ava, Ohio, when she went to pluck a mustard weed from her garden and spotted a shiny object that the stalk had grown up through. It was the ring, which was returned to Lansdowne's widow. The investigation into the crash revealed something interesting. Commander Lansdowne was afraid to take that flight. He had told the Navy Department that violent weather conditions were common in that area of Ohio in late summer, and he made a plea to postpone the trip to another season. 
but his superiors were anxious to show off the ship and only agreed to delay the flight from August to September. In the inquiry that followed, Lansdowne's widow argued that publicity had won over prudence. Now, there are some memorials at the various crash sites in Noble County. Site number one is in Buffalo Township. That's where the control car crashed. There's a really old, old, early filled stone where somebody had crudely carved on it, marking that this is the site where Commander Lansdowne's body was found. There's also a newer marker that was added in 1975. Site number two, where the stern came to rest, is a half mile southwest across Interstate 77 in Noble Township. The rough outline of the stern is marked with concrete blocks, and a sign marking that site is actually visible from the freeway. Site number three is six miles southwest in Sharon Township at the northern edge of State Route 78 and on part of the old Nichols Farm where the nose of the Shenandoah's bow came to rest. There's a semicircular gravel drive there with a small granite marker. I'll be honest with you, we took a drive there to check them out, and after it took us like nearly an hour of going in circles and stopping people at the street to make inquiries, we finally found site number one, but we just gave up on the other two. I have no idea if they are easier to find, but if you're feeling adventurous, consider it a scavenger hunt. Speaking of scavenger hunts, I found a story published late last year in airspacemag.com about a woman in Ava whose husband grew up in the area collecting Shenandoah history and all the artifacts he could get his hands on and then assembling them into a mobile museum that she takes to fairs, schools, and scouting troops. You see, in spite of the effort by authorities to retrieve the vessel, Many pieces remained on fireplace mantles and in hope chests and were passed from generation to generation as family heirlooms. Some had even been converted into functional items. The museum curator, Teresa Rayner, once discovered a lampshade made from the Shenandoah's balloon canvas and an aluminum wash basin from the ship that had been converted into a hanging planter. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. At the start of this episode, we played a clip of The Wreck of the Shenandoah, written and performed by Vernon Delhart within weeks of the crash. We found a copy someone kindly had shared on YouTube, so we thought we'd play the whole thing for you here. Have a listen, and we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. At four o'clock one evening of a warm September day, a great and mighty airship from Lake Perth flew away. The mighty Shenandoah, the pride of all this land. Her crew was of the bravest, Captain Lansdowne in command. The giant motor thundered, she proudly sailed along. 
man was at his station, each part was true and strong. They started for St. Louis as they turned into night with not a thought of danger on that last fatal flight. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. 
I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.